Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to episode 239 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor here, and I'm joined as always by the one and only Mr. Daniel Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, chief? Decently, decently. Slightly, slightly restful week last week, what with the whole Thanksgiving and whatnot. How was your Thanksgiving, Leslie? It was fantastic. Absolutely what I needed. Just a house filled with family and just so much love and good food and so many great times. We hope that you guys did not miss us too much, but we are back and we will be continuing along with a couple weeks of episodes before we take a week off for Christmas, but then we'll be back around New Year's. But anyway, we will continue to keep you guys up to date on our various plans. Honestly, it's basically there's no episode December 22nd for Christmas, but we'll be back December 29th with the 2024 preview. Okay, fine. That's the simple way of putting it. There will be no episode on the 22nd, but otherwise we're just plowing along into 2024 or maybe 2022. I truly don't know. The years all just blend together. Either way, happy December, Dan. Same to you, and we will definitely be unpacking what December has in store for television fans because it's definitely a month of the calendar year yeah but before we get into all that we're gonna start where we usually do and that's with headlines number one up first apple has canceled its kevin durant drama swagger after a two-season run oh i feel bad for angie who was uh, a large fan of swagger but also there were a lot of people who had positive feelings about swagger but Definitely goes under the heading of Apple TV shows that never got an iota of visible traction anywhere, which is, again, too bad because clearly not a bad show. And they tried to promote it. It's one of those shows which, like, lots of people felt like they saw no promotion for it. And that mostly means they didn't watch NBA basketball coverage or ESPN, where they really did try to push the show just without all that much success. Yeah, I mean, they didn't own it, which is part of the other problem. But you know what? License it. License it to a broadcast network that needs filler content. License it to Netflix. You know, get it seen. You've paid for it. Get Make some money out of it. At this point, not much to be done with that. And honestly, I don't know where it could land. I mean, obviously, probably it would get more eyeballs on Netflix because that's kind of the answer to where everything would get more eyeballs. You're not well, on Netflix. It's from C- CBS Studios, so maybe they'll try and stick it on Paramount Plus to, after whatever exclusivity window Apple negotiated. But uh, either way, at some point, the streaming walls have to come down. They do, but still in all, I don't know that anything gets more eyeballs on Paramount Plus if it isn't executive produced by Taylor Sheridan. So I don't know. It's, uh, it's Swagger a- from the world of Taylor Sheridan. That would be a lie, but I'll hey. Stop can't hurt. Continuing with things which just never got traction, and also continuing with an ongoing strange trend involving 
Disney not knowing what to do with the Muppets and audiences not caring what Disney tries to do with the Muppets, Disney Plus has axed Muppets Mayhem after a single season. I will say it for about the millionth time. Just make the Muppet Show for 2023 slash 2024. There's a whole generation of stars out there who would love to appear on an episode of the Muppet Show. It is not that complicated. <coughs> Brad Goldstein. <clears throat> well, I mean, he would be happy to executive produce it and write for it, I would assume, if one asked him. But yeah, they're overthinking it. And the idea that what people wanted from the Muppets was... <sighs> I don't know. An Electric Mayhem spinoff series is just a, a strange idea. And the list now of recent Muppet failures is so long that people are leaving shows off because they didn't even realize they ever existed. So everyone, when they saw this cancellation, is like, yeah, and this only and this lasted as long as the ABC Muppet show from five years ago. And I'm thinking, wow, you completely ignored that there was an entire Muppet show where the Muppets put on a weekly web series. And I don't even remember what that one was called, but it absolutely existed. There's a run now of failed Muppet-based properties that mostly are distinguished by them attempting to overthink what should not be overthought. There's an expression, keep it simple, stupid. And it's an expression for a reason. It's true. Up next, Amazon, like others, is cleaning house and has canceled Harlan Coben's Shelter, as well as Gloria calderon Kellett's With Love and The Horror of Dolores Roach. All three were produced in-house at the streamer. And in other news out of Amazon, jury duty breakout, Ronald Gladden has signed an overall deal with Amazon and will develop and star in new projects for the streamer. Dan, this is really the guy who wasn't in on the jury duty joke getting an overall deal. Yeah, it, it makes no sense because my takeaway from Jury Duty, a show that I did not like, and yet I am well aware that many people did. It is an Emmy nominee for Outstanding Comedy Series, so totally fine. I know people loved it. Still in all, the only thing that marked Ron Gladden's presence on that show was a general level of low-level star wattage decency that was what his personality on the show was is crazy stuff was happening and he smiled slightly bemused by it <laughs> there was absolutely nothing in his persona or what he contributed to that show that gives any indication whatsoever that he has a star anything he was a good-natured person who wasn't awful and that was what characterize the show it makes no sense anyway as for those three shows i feel a little bit bad about the gloria calderon kellett show not just because she's a former tv's top five guest but it was a decent show and a show with a big heart which Shelter one wasn't... she had two of them canceled dan oh two wait which one was oh i guess yes with that's right. and the horror i forgot of that she was Roach. on the horror of dolores Roads as well which was i didn't understand why anyone would have thought that was an ongoing series. It, it did not feel like it was an ongoing series. It felt like it was a 90-minute movie or a 90-minute play that somehow got extended to series length that didn't have enough energy for that. And I didn't mind the Harlan Coben thing. I thought it was reasonably entertaining, but also not essential. So none of those are particularly sticky or meaningful shows. With Love at least had, I don't know, it really did have a lot of heart. It, it had a lot of heart. It had a lot of general things going for it. Very solid cast, but you know, obviously just not enough buzz. Continuing along in more positive news or renewally news, depending on whether you find that necessarily positive, NBC has renewed both of its freshman dramas, The Irrational and Found, for second seasons. Both were developed during the pilot season in 2022 and were held for this season and were the reason why NBC had original scripted programming in September and other networks did not. So, yay! 
I guess, for them. Yep. Elsewhere, a week after confirming that Young Sheldon will end with its upcoming seventh season, CBS announced this week that its other Chuck Lorre comedy, Bob Hart's Abishola, is also ending with its fifth season in 2024. And spoiler alert, you will hear much more from Chuck Lorre in our supersized showrunner spotlight segment coming up in segments three and four because it's so good we filled two segments with it. In other CBS news, which I'm sure will make many people's uncles and fathers and grandfathers unhappy, CBS has revealed that the Tom Selleck-led procedural Blue Bloods will conclude after its upcoming 14th season. That is an insane number of seasons. I do not really understand how it lasted that long, except for, and this is shocking, it's an extremely popular show. It's not actually all that shocking. It's been a long-running and successful show for CBS, but it can't go on forever. Nothing can go on forever. Jeez. Yeah, and keep in mind that the cast took a 25% pay cut in order to keep the show going for what is now the final season. I think uh, my wife's uncle will be very upset about this, but then again, he's got Reacher and Jack Ryan and all those other uncle, dad, grandpa TV shows. There's absolutely nothing with the existence of such television shows, and again, this show had an extremely long run. I mean, I remember back in the day when I used to cover ratings on a morning basis, I certainly remember waking up on Saturday mornings and <laughs> and consistently being amazed by how large the audience was every single week for Blue Bloods. Maybe after 14 seasons, it's my time to uh, confess that every time I hear the title Blue Bloods, I think of that bad 80s commercial for Blue Blockers. Do you remember that, Dan? No, I don't. Get yourself a pair of Blue Blockers. Well, that joke will appeal to a very, very small percentage of our older listeners. (laughs) Which is to say that it's the Blue Bloods target demo. So we do tailor your humor to the audience. I think that is very important. Elsewhere, MGM Plus, the linear network and streamer formerly known as Epics, has renewed its Forrest Whitaker vehicle, The Godfather of Harlem, for a fourth season. Speaking of fourth seasons, Stars has renewed Power Book 3, raising Kanan for a fourth season ahead of its third season debut. And wrapping up headlines for this week, Carrie Washington has renewed her overall deal with ABC Signature, which has triggered a second season renewal for the Onyx Collective drama Unprisoned. So lots of renewals, a couple of cancellations, but yeah, this is the landscape that we are in post-strike. Lots of companies reviewing their slates, making some decisions, looking at cast options, looking at all the financials and realizing, you know what, we don't need to keep Blue Bloods on the air for this long because it's an expensive show that we own, but we can make something else that will probably get that rating for a lot cheaper. And by the way, all the Chuck Lorre shows are produced by Warner Brothers. So those are expensive licensing deals. So lots of cancellations, only a few renewals, and at least in our conversation here, no big acquisitions of new shows, which feels like it may be something to pay attention to going forward. As we reach the end of the year and and the start of a new one, Be on the lookout for the FX Peak TV Tracker story. I'm guessing that's going to be coming sometime in January. If you read the writing on the wall, that Peak TV bubble burst a long time ago. Well, a few months ago, I should say. Earlier this year. Pre-strike. Not post-strike. Not because of the strike. What is time, Leslie? What is time? Yeah, we're going into what year? 2021? That's called a callback, Dan. (laughs) Callback to five minutes ago. Number two. Up next, final month of the year, Dan, we've got some shows to preview, but 
as you said, December is a really weird month for premieres. There is a lot of stuff premiering in December, but... It's like, just I not think, a lot of high-profile stuff. There's a lot of clutter. There's an awful lot of clutter, and I guess that... I don't want to say there's something for everybody. I think probably there's like one show for everybody or two shows for everybody. I don't think that there are that many people who are going to be like, yeah, man, I got three new shows every single week in December. But I think definitely people will be like, what are you talking about? I can't wait for the new season of dot, dot, dot. And that will be the thing they're looking forward to for the month. And I guess if you're looking forward to two shows in a month, that's not so bad. I, you know, I think the average person probably maybe watches two shows in a month or something. So yay. What do we got? So I ran down this list and it's, it's pretty long, but the stuff that I've really heard of. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. This is a family (laughs) show, dude. No, Um, it isn't. No, it's not. Families are bored to tears by TV's top five. Yes, you can use that. That's as our new blood. tagline for 2024, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm trying to get back on track here. But, uh, you know, look, I looked at this list and there's a couple of things that pop. You've got the season three of Slow Horses, My Life with the Walter Boys. That's on Netflix. Slow Horses, obviously, on Apple TV. Then you've got the second half of the final season of The Crown. Obviously, that's the biggest release this month. Well, if you're taking it literally, Reacher is going to be the biggest release this month. Get it? Because he's tall. Because he's tall. (laughs) Okay, dad jokes. Okay, I'll stop. Then you've got Archer, Percy Jackson, and the Olympians, which a lot of younger viewers are very, very excited about. The second season of Peacock's anthology, Dr. Death. Marvel's What If is back for a second season on Disney+. Plus. NBC brings John Cryer back to network TV with Extended Family. And then a final season of one of your favorites, Dan, Letterkenny. But there's not a whole lot of major, major debuts outside of really The Crown. Yeah, I, I think The Crown is obviously its prestige piece of television. And even that, after how lackluster, honestly, the first four episodes of the season were, it's hard to be as excited by the idea, okay, great, now we're going to see the famous fashion show at college at St. Andrews, where Kate Middleton wore a slinky dress and Prince William saw that she was pretty and something. And that's like going to be a whole episode, apparently. They put out a press still for it, so. But uh, yeah, there's sort of bits and pieces where sort of niche fan bases are going to be like, yeah, you know, and not small niche fan bases, midsize, even large. I mean, Mr. Monk's Last Case, a Monk movie on Peacock. That was exactly what I was going to mention as exactly one of those shows where totally there's a fan base out there that's going to be like, oh yeah. And Slow Horses, uh, I'll talk about it in Critics Corner, has, I would say, a large fan base, probably a, a fan base with some overlap with Blue Bloods, but I don't think necessarily entirely. It's a different kind of show, but it's still a little bit of a dad type show, but I don't see any reason why moms and daughters and aunts and uncles and everyone can watch it together. It should not be bound by artificial contracts, constructs like gender. Anywho, you know, like, look, I'm curious about the second season of Reacher because I thought the first season was was decent and as established, I am a, a fan of the book series. So that could be a thing that people could be looking forward to. Letterkenny, as you mentioned, final season, that makes me very sad, really and truly. I, I feel as if, obviously, the creative team should do whatever they want. But I also really enjoyed that it was becoming, for Hulu at least, a Christmas tradition. Here, have six episodes of Letterkenny to amuse yourselves with in the slowest week of the year by all means. The idea that Dr. Death somehow became an anthology is strange, but Mandy Moore and Edgar Ramirez, so maybe that'll make people happy. But it's it's an odd franchise, a little bit like Dirty John, which became a franchise for no particular reason. I think Percy Jackson and the Olympians could be interesting because the book series 
big deal, huge fan base now stretching across probably multiple generations. I'm feeling like you can get to a certain age and there there are now multiple groups of kids who have grown up reading those books. And the movie adaptation was such a bad and badly miscalculated thing that I can see how if this is in line with the spirit of the books, it could be big except that disney plus hasn't had that much success getting people to watch things that aren't star wars and marvel shows see the muppets see turner and hooch was a reboot that they did what what else well i mean if you're just wanting to stick with brands national treasure treasure show yeah they had the doogie kamaloa uh, md they they've had a lot of that willow which i assume is still floating in the ether for hypothetically someone to reacquire it for some reason the mighty ducks game changers absolutely that got a couple seasons they had big shots which got two seasons they've they've struggled to find audiences for some things that were big brands and other things that weren't but i can imagine how if this really does capture the spirit of the books and the author of the book is one of the creators executive producers so it certainly could that could be interesting and if it doesn't work two days later they have a Marvel show, even if it's What If, which is probably the least buzzy of all of the Marvel shows. Uh, people watched it. What I'm going to be interested to see personally, and I haven't gotten a chance to watch it, so I don't know, watch any of them rather, is that there are a lot of kind of under the radar acquisition-y type shows that maybe one or two of them might be good so you've got a week where there's the lovers on amc plus culprits with Gemma arterton and a couple other recognizable faces on hulu i watched the trailer for hulu's such brave girls and it made me laugh a couple times well you know that doesn't always happen so maybe that's good and if all of that fails there's a bts documentary series there's a tribute to dick van dyke on cbs there's a documentary series about Dion sanders that it's going to come out right after he was sports illustrated sports person of the year so there's that there could be things it's just yeah there are definitely fewer big obvious things to look forward to but i hope some of the under the radar things that i just mentioned i hope one or two of them prove to actually be good because then i'll tell you about them and maybe they will be yeah two really cool looking uh, comedy specials too where you've got trevor noah on netflix december 19th and then one of my favorites ricky gervais on christmas also on netflix yes there are a couple big comedy specials and honestly lately i i feel as if comedy specials have been getting possibly more buzz than a lot of the original programming so we we might live in a in a golden age of streaming comedy specials or we might live in a somewhat slow period for other things who knows it's it's not going to be a great month but maybe this is the time to finally catch up on that under the radar show that you've been just waiting for the chance to catch up on or alternatively to catch up on 14 seasons of blue bloods or just do what uh, my wife and I are doing, which is watch a Christmas movie every night this month. Everyone's got to do. <laughs> got to do what they got to do. I will not be doing that, but I look forward to maybe a segment towards the end of the month where Leslie runs down all of her favorite Christmas programs that she's watched. So get yourself ready, write a, write a full list and, and give me a top 10 at the end of the month. Well, I've got a list going already. I've already watched Best Christmas Ever, Love Hard, Let It Snow, and I think a couple others that I've already forgotten about. One of them had um, Brandy in it with Heather Graham. That was not good. 
Spoiler alert. I know that one existed. I, I That one, I I actually feel like I saw ads for it. They might have just been like pop-up ads on different websites, but I, I do feel as if I have awareness of that, whereas Love Hard, I cannot tell you what that is. I think that that was the one with Nina Dobrev in it, and that was cute. Well, <laughs> at least it was cute that my wife and I collectively gave it a B. A B. Okay. That, hey, and keep in mind, this is a Christmas movie scale. Okay, so it's not like your version of a B. It's it's a sliding scale. <laughs> Feel as if that becomes a lower bar. But assemble yourself maybe a top five or a top ten, and and get back to us in a couple weeks. I mean, right? it's just going to be love. Actually, I already watched that this year. It's it's <sighs> one of my favorites. I watch it every year. I know it's got problems. I still love it, Dan. And just <laughs> sorry, I am not going to Xmas shame you. Uh, Thank uh, you. In general, I'm not. Maybe love actually shaming is appropriate. But as for general Christmas joy and Yuletime spirit, everyone has to spend the month of December as they see fit. And Hanukkah starts next week. So I also look forward to your top five or top 10 of Hanukkah movies. Premiere. There's 10 Hanukkah movies? There really are not. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But I assume that there are one or two. I feel like I feel like we've gotten into the point at which Hallmark now knows they need to do one or two Hanukkah movies a year. No? I mean, who's the executive running that place now that Wanya Lucas is leaving? I don't know, uh, but I know it's not Bill Abbott. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Number three. Up third and fourth this week is our showrunner spotlight segment. Our guest this week is comedy kingpin Chuck Lorre, whose credits include The Big Bang Theory, Young Sheldon, and Two and a Half Men. Lorre joins us this week to discuss his Max Comedy Bookie, starring Sebastian Maniscalco. Lorre co-created Bookie with Nick Bacay after the duo previously collaborated on CBS Comedy's Mom, Young Sheldon, and Two and a Half Men. Lori previously was a guest on TV's Top 5 in September 2019 in our 39th episode tied to the launch of Bob Hart's Abishola and the returns of Mom, Young Sheldon, and the Kaminsky Method. So lots has changed in Lori's world, and this t- interview happens to be perfectly timed. Thank you again for joining us, Chuck. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So news just broke that Bob Hart's Abishola is ending with Season 5. With that announcement, coming after Young Sheldon was confirmed to be ending with season seven. With both shows wrapping, what does your future in broadcast look like? In the words of Douglas Adams, goodbye and thanks for all the fish. I don't know. It's a tough question to answer right out of the gate. I don't know. I still love the medium, whether it be uh, working in front of an audience or the single camera approach. I still think it's a wonderful way to uh, create an ensemble of characters that then you could attach to and care for. I'm curious what this either does or doesn't reflect about 
the economics of broadcast comedy in general versus, say, five years ago, especially when it comes to shows that are successful, but maybe not, you know, Big Bang Theory style smash hits. Like, in your mind, how long do you think CBS would have given a show like Mom today? Or how long do you think that CBS would have given Big Bang Theory, given that it started off a little bit slow and then found its audience a couple seasons in? The economics have obviously changed. I don't know that I'm the guy to speak to the economics of this business. My approach has always been pretty simple because that's how I roll. Simple. Do everything humanly possible to make a great show, to make people laugh, to make people give a damn about the characters and laugh at their journey. And the business side of it, that's not my business. I just try and make a good show and then I hope for the best. Uh, How these decisions are made in terms of the fiscal nature of making television. um, If I approach it that way, I'm kind of doomed to failure. I think that's not the way to approach storytelling. You tell a story because it's worth telling. If you make a comedy, you make it because you think laughter will ensue. If you don't think that and you're just trying to make a buck, and I think that's a wrong-headed approach. In a sort of vacuum in which storytelling really is everything. In your mind, how much more story would you have said that Young Sheldon and Bob Hart's Abishola had? Well, Bob Hart's Abishola, they're very different situations. We have reached the time in the cycle of Young Sheldon where Ian is, he's 14 years old now. He's pushing six feet tall. (laughs) You know, the story of this, you know, extraordinary... prodigy in a small town outside of Houston and in a family where he is very much fish out of water in that family. Uh, That story, we've kind of told that story and the remainder of his path leading up to the Big Bang Theory happens at Caltech uh, in California. So seven years following him from eight years old to 15, it seems like the natural lifespan of the show. And that was a feeling that was shared between myself and both Steve Malero and Steve Holland, who have been instrumental in keeping this thing as extraordinary as it's been. And with Bob? Bob Hart's Every Show is a little different story. I, I think there's so many more stories to tell about the initial motivation for that was a romance wrapped around the story of immigration. Immigrants make America great. That extraordinary, courageous effort that is made by millions of people every year to find their way in this country. And that was a, a story I, I don't necessarily feel we were done, but that was not my call. But, you know, at the same time, you know, as we get into the economics of broadcast, one of the big things that happened with Bob Hart's Abishola was that everyone in the cast, save for the two leads, was demoted from series regular to recurring as no part one, of an... No on- one was... It wasn't a demotion. It well, was... There was fiscal restraints imposed on the show. In order to continue making the show, the the cost of making it had to be reined in. And that was the only way to do that. I mean, how much of of that decision do you think impacted the decision to come to an end? The the idea for CBS to say, that's enough. We don't want any more. This is it. That's a question you'd have to ask them. You know, again, these are things that I learn as you learn. (laughs) And it's not my call. I'm really grateful that we've had the run we've had five years, it's been terrific. And we've, it's been done through COVID with the, you know, the seats were wheeled out of the stage and we, we couldn't have an audience for two years. And, and we're having an audience for this final year, which is wonderful. It's, you know, to, to do it live again. With the broadcast future kind of unclear, are you pitching anything new that's designed specifically for broadcast or are you being told to kind of hold off until January? I've maybe been pitching a little. <laughs> so 
I don't go too far down that road, but yeah, I'm, I still feel pretty lucky and I have a great deal of fun, you know, playing in the sandbox and, uh, till they tell me to go home, I'm going to keep trying. But that is for broadcast specifically. Some of it. Yes. He says cryptically. Coming out of the strike, there's been a lot of talk about this, this new normal, right? You know, that a lot of people thought that, that the industry, you know, that a lot of execs would were clearing their schedules because they were expecting to be inundated with pitches. And that hasn't happened for the most part. From your vantage point, what does this new post-strike, post-peak TV normal look like for you amid this larger landscape of budget cuts and fiscal responsibility, et cetera? Again, we're talking about stuff that if I concern myself with the economics, then I'm not doing my job. My job is not to determine how do we make money making these shows or how do we syndicate them or what's the value of a show. And My job is to try and, and create wonderful characters who we care about and their relationships and their hopes and their dreams and their desires and their character flaws and their character assets and wrap that all into wonderful casting and great actors and then God willing, people laugh. They, they enjoy watching the show. That's my job. The economics of this strike, I understand it. I understand why the strike happened. And I think it was a legitimate, both for SAG and Writers Guild to you know pursue these new contracts. But how it plays out in the long term, you have to ask somebody with a great deal more insight and wisdom than I, I can bring to bear on this. I just don't know. But in terms of, of what you can control, the stuff that you're developing and, and pitching and things like that, have there been things that you've heard that, you know, in these last couple of weeks since the WGA strike ended, when you've gotten back out there with whether it comes to pitching or with what your next show is and if broadcast wants it or if it has to be a co-production or something like that? How you underwrite and finance these things is a looming question. You know, in the past, production companies were able to justify carrying these huge deficits in hopes of recouping the deficit and making a profit in syndication. Obviously, syndication may be a thing of the past. Watching a rerun of The Big Bang Theory uh, or any show of that nature on Channel 5 at 7 o'clock, that might, might be a thing of the past. If it is, then how you finance these things and the logic of financing them is open to question. And I honestly don't know what the answer is. It's a little scary. I understand the, the companies that I, I, I've worked for Warner Brothers now for 25 years, 24 years. They're in business to make money. All these companies are in business to make money. Okay, that's fine. I think if you pursue money, still upside down. You pursue making a great show, making a great movie, and then hopefully money follows. You don't put the money first. If you're pursuing money first, it's pandering, it's cheating, condescending to the audience. Just not the way, at least for me, I get excited about a great idea for a character and for relationships. Bookie was something worth doing. It was just worth writing about a couple of guys who are dinosaurs, who are pursuing what was a career for thousands of years and now is perhaps coming to an end with internet gambling being pervasive and encouraged. They're giving away free money to bet online. What does that tell you? It's a drug, yeah. The first one's free, remember? Yep. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, Bookie is your first comedy for Max, where you've also got the next iteration of Big Bang Theory, as that show segues from being a CBS original to a Max original. But how did Bookie wind up on streaming? And was there a version of this show that you wanted to do for broadcast? No, it was never meant for broadcast. I wanted to do a dark comedy. I wanted to do something that 
exists, a world that exists in the gray zone, uh, off the grid. Listen, I've been doing this for so many, many years, and violence has never been a part of anything I've done. Certainly criminal behavior is unthinkable. I, for 30 years, I've been having characters sip coffee and talk on the couch. That's That was, you know, as violent as we got. And so I've always wanted to, you know, I, I love watching shows that are edgy and gritty and entirely different from what I've been doing. I wanted to try and do something in this arena. When I first met with Sebastian Maniscalco, the obvious conversation was transforming his stand-up persona and the stand-up act into a show. And that certainly would have been a legitimate thing to try and do. But then I, I happened to see him uh, in The Irishman. He did a small scene playing Crazy Joe Gallo psychopath opposite Bob De Niro and Joe Pesci. And he was terrific. He was just, he's got real acting chops. And uh, I, I don't know how to do a show. I don't know that I have the courage to do a show about a psychopath. By the way, it's already been done and done extremely well with Barry. So I didn't want to go down that road, but I wanted to try and do something where the character is, uh, is struggling to survive in this netherworld and this criminal netherworld. I ran the idea past Nick Nakai. I've been working with for many, many years on mom and young children. And his background is sports gambling. He used to be a talking head on ESPN about sports gambling. Uh, interestingly enough, before the NFL said stop because they didn't approve of gambling. Well, now they do. And uh, Nick suggested, what about if he was a bookie? Now, bookie in California still has a career because California still hasn't legalized online betting. And that's where it all began. We pitched the idea to Sebastian and he was gung-ho, which was really exciting because I really felt very strongly that he'd be perfect for this character. And he was, and he is. It's interesting that you mentioned that criminality hasn't had a role in the shows that you've made, but a couple of years ago, you did a show about marijuana as it was on the, the eve of legalization. This, of course, is a show about sports gambling as it's becoming increasingly more mainstream and increasingly less taboo. So I'm curious what interests you about the idea of these things that used to be taboo, but now are entering kind of a normalcy and a, a mainstream. This jointed wasn't about the illegal distribution of marijuana, it was legal. They had a retail establishment. And, and the transition from criminality to legality is an interesting place and time. I'll give you an example going back. We had a, a very difficult time making a show. We tried to get footage from the NFL to put on TV monitors in the background. And the NFL said, no, we don't support illegal gambling, which to my definition is illegal gambling they don't have a piece of because they do have a piece of DraftKings and FanDuel and Caesars and MGM and all of these things are now legitimate and they're advertised as being a legitimate pastime, uh, but not with bookies. <laughs> so we're in an interesting, you know, in between time. And thankfully, we put the show in Los Angeles on purpose because it's still one of the few states where uh, online betting is illegal. So these guys are still clinging to the fact that they're still maybe one of the only places to go to place a bet on Monday night's game. Plus, they extend credit and the money is all cash, so you're not paying tax. So, and their clientele is diverse and bizarre. And I love that. 
How much research were you able to actually do into this? What fingers do you have in that world already? We talked to a lot of bookies all over the country who have asked to not be named. So, because, you know, they're bookies. <laughs> but they're spectacularly wonderful, colorful characters who've been running books for decades in all different parts of the country. You hear some of the most wonderful things. There's, there's a scene, uh, I forget which episode it's in, where a surgeon is mid-surgery. And a nurse is holding a phone to his ear and he's placing a bet while he's in surgery. We didn't make that up. One of my favorite lines, and I, we never got it into the uh, into an episode, but one guy said, the trick to running a book, Chuck, is you don't want to take a guy to the cleaners. You want to take him one shirt at a time to the cleaners. It's a business where you want to keep your clients going. You don't want to wipe them out. So there's long-term relationships between bookie and client. And uh, that's intriguing to me. That These are not passing relationships. They're long-term relationships. Well, given, though, that you've had this well-established empathy and interest in talking about addiction in shows mm -hmm. and in looking at the lives of people in recovery from different addictions, having a show that had people who could be seen as kind of predatory in that world as being the protagonist, how did you approach both how clean those characters come out looking and how you wanted to handle the people who have this very real addiction to gambling? Did you see a couple of episodes? First episode is the one. This is what we sent, we were saying. So you so you saw the first scene. Yeah, we made a very purposeful choice to start this series with a scene of a, a family being torn apart by gambling. So we did that. And one of the interesting things that happened as we were going along, both writing and producing the show, was finding out that Sebastian's sweet spot is not as predator. His sweet spot is as victim. He's victimized when he gets money that is questionable in where that money has been. He's victimized by his wife. He's victimized by a guy who owes him money, who no longer identifies as a guy. Everywhere he goes, things do not go well for him. He is not by any means a predator. I mean, he may think of himself as such, but the world is working against him. And I think that's one of the ways we I can, anyway, as, a, as a, trying to be a viewer for my own show, is identify and empathize with the bookie. He's trying to make a living. He's trying to make a, as legitimate a living as he can. He's not out to hurt anybody. He's continually paying a price for terrible things happening as a result of the world he lives in. And I think that's an entry point for uh, identification or empathy by the audience, certainly by me. He's well-meaning, but things don't necessarily go well. And I think that's something I think we all deal with, regardless of what your job is or your family life is. Nobody sets out to be malicious. I think it's interesting because I think the way you just described his character, it allows me to kind of see how the character kind of does to some degree stem from Sebastian's comedy, because a lot of his comedy is about the here I am in a world that's not the world I remember it being. How do I cope with the changes in the new world? How did you look at the parts of that comic persona that you actually wanted to bring out in this star vehicle for him? This begins with, you know, my identifying with a profession that is on its way out. You got to be honest and say, I'm not quite sure that I'm also not in a profession that's on its way out. I could very easily be, be the dinosaur with my feet in the, uh, in the tar and watching a meteorite coming down going, hmm, this doesn't look good. We're talking about the business and how the business is changing and how these companies operate and what constitutes success and 
And how do you finance this stuff? It all seems to be changing really quickly. It's hard to get a handle on it. And it may be changing in a way that says, thanks, Chuck. Goodbye. That's something I, I recognized in telling a story about a guy running a book. He's clearly a guy that technology is pushing out the door. And again, that's something I think we all recognize as a threat. Even a couple of years ago, you wouldn't have anticipated. I certainly wouldn't have anticipated this even a few years ago, that we're having a conversation about artificial intelligence, might write scripts. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> this happened last year. This happened in the last year. And it's happening really quickly to the point where it's partly responsible for two major labor disruptions because technology is moving at such an incredible pace and perhaps moving us aside. And that's the case for a bookie. It's the case for maybe a sitcom writer. One of the things that's obviously in the pilot, and I, I can't believe we're here, but at what point in the process of developing and, and making bookie, did it occur to you to bury the hatchet with Charlie Sheen, who obviously for our listeners who don't know, famously had a gambling problem of his own? When we wrote the, the first episode, Nick and I wrote a scene for, we, we realized, all right, he's running a book in Los Angeles. He's probably got some serious heavyweight celebrity clients. And we kind of wrote it, we wrote a scene with a basically to be determined a celebrity to be named later that owes them money. And I just remember one night thinking, I, I know exactly who should play that part. And I called Nick and I said, it's got to be Charlie Sheen. I know from our years, eight and a half years we, we worked together, that he was very much engaged in betting football and stuff. And, and he knew all about that world. And uh, so, but the question was, well, you know, given all the stuff that went down way back when, is this something I could do? And the answer was, yes, I, it's old news to me. In the last couple of years, I've been able to start watching the reruns and laughing. I barely remember having made some of these shows there 20 years ago. I, I've watched the reruns and really enjoyed them and enjoyed his work. And the question was, is would this be something he would consider? And, and I managed to get him on the phone. He was gracious. He was grateful. And he was eager, as, as was I, to put all that behind him. And then he came to the table read. He just killed it. He was terrific. And working with him, directing that first episode, and Angus T. Jones was in that scene as well. I don't know if you recognized him. It was almost 20 years after we had shot the pilot where Angus was eight years old, annoying these guys who were playing poker. And this time he was in the poker game. It was really quite wonderful. It was, it was a very kind of healing thing to put all that craziness behind us. What kind of reaction did Charlie have when he picked up the phone and it was you on the other end? I mean, I can't imagine that that was an, an easy call for you and all the work that you've put in to, to get to that point. I can't speak for Charlie. I just know for myself, I was really grateful that we were friends once, you know, about eight and a half years together. He was in a great place when we spoke and he was really warm and, and open to the idea. And, and it's a tricky idea. I'm asking the man to play a version of a fictionalized version of himself. And, and we're clearly making fun of him and making fun of the whole persona, the whole craziness. He was game. He was, he was perfectly willing to do that. He recognized the comedy of his journey which I think speaks well of the man, you know, that he could step outside of that whole story and see the, the comedy in it, that it was, you know, the craziness of it and make fun of it. The first time I saw him after many, many years was at the table read for that first episode. Walked up and we hugged. It was wonderful. 
It was just wonderful. It was something I never could have dreamt could happen, and it did happen. I'm grateful for it. A time in my life that was dark and frightening and infuriating and all kinds of horrible things, and it was all gone. You also wrote and shopped a script called Sex, Drugs, and a Sitcom about a year ago that explored everything that went on behind the scenes at Two and a Half Men. Did the work that you put in on that script play a factor in your decision to reunite with Charlie, or did that even writing that script, was that kind of therapeutic to get to that point. The script was me just venting, you know, and getting that out on paper was therapeutic. I showed it to a couple of people and then I put it in the drawer and forgot about it. I guess on some level I needed to write that in order to put all that behind me as well. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but it was very much a therapeutic process of, you know, spilling out all my, my venom and anger and frustration onto these pages and then putting it away. When you're crafting a version of a character that is Charlie Sheen and that has Charlie Sheen's notable traits, how do you find the happy medium between making the character funny because you're laughing about crazy things that happened with Charlie Sheen, but also finding a way to write for an actor who you know is an excellent comic actor, so writing funny things for him to do that aren't just Charlie Sheen is crazy, Charlie Sheen has been crazy, etc. Charlie's a extremely gifted, talented, and experienced actor. When you're working with somebody who has that kind of background, you want them to succeed. And success in a comedy is, does the audience give a damn? Are, are they laughing? You know, Do they want to see more of him? That's the goal. And you have to be respectful. I think when you're asking an actor to play any version of themselves, you have to be respectful. And you have to actually, what we did was we sent the pages to Charlie. If there was one word there that he didn't like, it was gone. You know, I, I didn't want to do anything that made him uncomfortable. I'm asking him to perform in a show that I'm producing and writing. I want him to be happy about it. I want him to have fun. And we did. We had a lot of fun. And I can't wait till people see the uh, the final episode where uh, Sebastian's character is having marital problems and Charlie Sheen's giving him marital advice. <laughs> it's funny going in, right? So, And, and he recognized that as well. I mean, that's a, again, speaks well of the man. He, he recognized the comedy of Charlie Sheen giving marital advice. What were Charlie Sheen's notes when you sent him the script like? The only note that he had of any significance to me was we originally had them finding him a drug rehab, a Malibu fancy drug rehab. And he said, can we not do the drug thing? You know, maybe I'm just, you know, I'm doing something else. And then we came up with the idea that he's renting a room in a drug rehab in Malibu to run a poker. He said, perfect. And then we both kind of at the same time went, it was a poker scene in the pilot of Two and a Half Men. What if we tried to recreate it? So those guys at the table were at the table 20 years ago in the pilot of Two and a Half Men, the same guys. And this time, Angus wasn't eight years old and in pajamas. He's 28 years old and he's sitting at the table. But it was the same group of guys from the pilot in 2003. One last Charlie question, but when you bring up the idea of casting Charlie to a studio executive in 2023, what is the reaction that you get from that executive? Well, I'll tell you, David Zaslav was over the moon. He was absolutely thrilled at the idea. He thought it was spectacular. His reaction was immediate, positive, go for it. This is fantastic. I love it. Great. And uh, that was very, very encouraging. You mentioned uh, David Zaslav, but I want to go back and touch on the Big Bang Theory spinoff that you're doing. Obviously, not a lot is known about that. The idea that this is now going to be made for Max 
rather than CBS. Can you talk a little bit about how you even got to this point where you are revisiting and, and doing another spinoff? Because I remember when the flagship series ended, talking to you on the at the finale event and the idea that for there to be another spinoff, it has to be the right creative. But we don't know anything about what the plot of this next one is. But can you talk us through how you wound up coming back you know, to this franchise for a second spinoff and how it wound up at Max specifically? Nothing's wound up at Max, first of all. I don't know what you were told, but we have nothing in place at Max. Zero, nothing. No one knows anything about what this is other than uh, the people that have been working on it with me. And uh, so nothing's been pitched, nothing's been placed. So it's all very prenatal. So there's a chance it could be for CBS? Or it could be for no one. I don't know. We haven't presented this to anyone. I'm not a big fan of spinoffs, or stuff like that. I Unless it just feels like a wonderful, fresh, this could conceivably be very different and also very funny. That's the reason to go forward not to keep digging in the same mine for the same precious minerals. It's about doing something worth doing. Otherwise, it's it's greedy. There's no reason for that. I do remember going to this press day and seeing that and, and writing the story that says Max, I'm looking at the press release right now, Max announces the Big Bang Theory project in development. But it, it's interesting that they obviously would want this to be for the home streamer rather than licensing it to a third party. But it, it does feel like that those vertically integrated walls have come down. I mean, young Sheldon just started streaming on Netflix mm-hmm. in addition to Max. So, I mean, does it feel like this walled garden, you know, the days of these vertically integrated companies are, are really starting to ease a little bit, especially with Sheldon moving to Netflix as well? I mean, from a very selfish point of view, I hope so, because the more funnels the shows exist on, the more people get to see them. I mean, if they're in a silo that is very small and limited, that wasn't the intent when we made these things. They were broadcasting. The word broad means wide and expansive. So the opportunity to make millions of people laugh it's not something to take lightly. It's a responsibility, but it's also an incredible gift. You know, back in the day when 20, 25 million people would watch an episode of The Big Bang Theory, it's an astonishing amount of people in real time on Thursday night. It was crazy. I'm old enough to remember coming to work on a Wednesday morning and looking at the ratings on the bulletin board when I was on Roseanne and 40 million people had watched the night before. And that might have been 40 million households. So who knows how many people, right? You can't take that for granted. That's unbelievable to reach that many people. If I was given that opportunity, I wouldn't want to waste one second of it. That's why I wrote the vanity card. I got a second at the end of the show. Well, let's put something there, you know, because it's a second. And if you can hit pause, it's however long you want it to be. So whatever the 22 minutes of a, of a network sitcom are, are precious minutes. I want to ask about that since you mentioned the vanity cards, because the vanity card at the end of the pilot of Bookie is very funny and very pointed about the fact that you are doing a vanity card for a service that, like every other service, is practically begging people to jump through the credits, to skip things like that and move on to the next episode. Do you feel like there's still a future? for the Chuck Lorre vanity card in our <laughs> skip in our skip the credits age. First of all, Daniel, you read the vanity card. 
I totally did. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of those ones where I read, well, no one will ever see this. So thank you. Maybe the culture that we live in is just moving so quickly that the idea of sitting still and seeing the names of the people who worked hard on these things is time not well spent for some reason. That's just another one of those things that's happening while we're watching hundreds and hundreds of people that work their ass off, make a good show. The chance to take a a little bit of a a bow at the end of the show is is gone. Is that something you're determined, though, that you're going to keep doing regardless, even if it's just like a journal entry that you're writing for yourself? At a certain point, it is a diary function. (laughs) It's just, dear me, the idea of it being unseen by millions. It's not something you shoot for, but it, that, that may be the truth of the matter. I want to go back. You mentioned 40 million people you know, watching an episode of Roseanne, and we are in now the streaming landscape. And obviously, you've already done Kaminsky Method. But do you feel like we're inching like slowly but surely, especially because of the gains that the WGA got in this most recent contract, toward a point where we can actually see how many people are actually watching some of these shows on streaming with real data, not doing some algebraic equation? I don't know. It's a really interesting thing to talk about because to the best of my understanding, there's two reasons why you keep information secret. One is the information is so embarrassing, you don't want anyone to know. Releasing that information will drive your stock price down. And the other one is you're so wildly successful, you don't want to encourage people to renegotiate their shitty deals, their deals made without any knowledge of whether they're succeeding or not. And I'm not sure which one is happening, but for the entirety of my career, if Roseanne was on Tuesday night at eight o'clock or whatever it was, Wednesday morning at 8 a.m., you knew everything. And then at noon, you had the national numbers and you knew even more. And there was no secrecy. Information was available to everyone. And people negotiated appropriately based on that information. I mean, you know, that a successful show, successful actors, a successful song gave the artist an opportunity to monetize that. We're in a world now where this information is under lock and key. I honestly don't know why. I have theories, but they're useless. They're just theories. What kind of data were you given for Kaminsky? None. (laughs) That's wild. None. I mean, when we got a second season, that was an acknowledgement that we did good. And then we managed to get a third season, which was not a given that we would get a third season. Remember, we had a third season without Alan Ark, which I had to kind of take a knee and plead that there's still more stories to be told, that we're not done. And they were very gracious and gave us an opportunity to have some closure in that third season. But again, I don't know. You know, every once in a while when I turn on Netflix and I see it there, I go, oh, it's still there. Oh, good. That must mean something. I don't know, but it's still there. So maybe people are still watching it, which would be fantastic. You, know, you want to make something that has some shelf life. At least I do. I don't want to make Kleenex. I want to make handkerchiefs. We're all neurotic in our own ways. With your particular brand of neurotic, of neuroses, are you healthier knowing exactly how many people are watching your shows or not knowing? I prefer to know. You've seen enough of these shows over the years. Uh, We have, except Kaminsky and Young Sheldon and now Bookie, all these shows were done in front of a live audience for over 30 years for me. That live audience provides knowledge. It is a humbling experience to hear their silence when you fail, when material is not what you think it was. It's not as funny or as you thought all week long prior to the show night in front of a live studio. So you got knowledge from the audience by their 
response or non-response. You had a learning curve. Oh, I thought that was hilariously funny. No one agrees with me. Shit. Um, okay. And you would see the right. We would all be stirring around, rewriting the scene, and then shooting it again with new words, trying to get it to work. And it was a kind of a manic, stressful experience. But we did that every week for decades, trying to make an audience laugh. And the audience's laughter or silence was information. It taught you something. It certainly taught you humility. You think you're so smart? Watch this joke die. You can hear the 134 freeway in the distance. It's so quiet. <laughs> so information allows you to make changes, to, to make things better. And the information about who's watching or not watching, or that information would be helpful. You know, I don't know if you can make changes and, and never really been a big believer that once someone quits on your show, they probably quit for good. You're not getting them back. I always likened it to, if you go into a restaurant and have a shitty meal, or a cockroach walks across the table while you're eating, you don't <laughs> go back to that restaurant. You never go back to that restaurant. It's sort of like that with television. When you go into a movie theater, you've paid your money, you're in. It's really got to be awful for you to leave in the middle, right? You're in. But a TV show requires a continuing relationship with the audience, an ongoing relationship between writers, actors, directors, audience. And when you lose that relationship, it's gone. It's gone forever. And if you don't know you're losing it, then that's information that would be really helpful. And so the, the black box of streaming is concerning. I hope it goes away. You and me both. Coming out of the strikes, you know, we've heard from a lot of different executives that a return to hard comedy, you know, less of the dramedy type stuff, fewer of these niche ideas, but the hard, straightforward comedy is what buyers are looking for right now. What do you make of the current state of the genre? The genre? <laughs> There's so many variations on what is a comedy. I'm determinedly old school in that I grew up in a world where comedy was defined by laughter, not whether you were amused and you didn't sit there and go, well, that was witty. How clever. <laughs> you laugh. How far back do I want to go here? You laughed at Abbott and Costello and, you know, and Laurel and Hardy and the Three Stooges. And then later on, you laughed your ass off at Get Smart and you laughed at Archie Bunker. You laughed and laughter was the coin of the realm of a comedy. That's not to say that there aren't other things you can do that don't cause laughter, but are wonderfully valid. Maybe they need another name. They're wonderfully written. They're wonderfully acted. They're wonderfully produced, but they do something else. And maybe we're too restrictive in naming these genres and trying to create these quarantined areas where this is a comedy and this is a drama. And those barriers perhaps are the problem more than uh, the uh, actual content. Is having to define the content is... Uh, Maybe more problematic. I thought you were about to give us the name for the alternative genre that you were about to propose. And I was going to be very excited to actually have a good working name for whatever it would be. Yeah, let's not do dramedy. Let's not <laughs> pick one drama, comedy. But if there's a third version, let's come up with something else. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I know I don't have the other one off the top of my head. If I were to say it, I'd regret it. So let's not do that. How did you wind up staying creative during the strike? How did you spend that six months? It was miserable, Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> I love what I do. When it's going well, it's fun. It's incredibly satisfying and gratifying. And when it's going badly, you want to rip your hair out and go, why am I still doing this? But knowing that those things come and go, and it's never one or the other is a reason to, you know, to hang out. I get to make shit up. And again, going back to this conversation, in the best of all worlds, people laugh. If that's how I've spent the bulk of my life, 
making people laugh. That's a good life. That was worth doing. Perry, once in a while, you know, you get out of this city and you meet people out in the world and you realize what you've done means something to them. It has value. It's humbling. It's gratifying. And um, it's encouraging. The business of it, nobody gives a shit about that. Nobody cares if you're using four cameras or one. Make a good show. doesn't matter how many cameras it takes. Is it a good show? Do I care about the character? Would Cheers have worked as a single camera show? Probably with that cast. It would have worked as a flip book. But it was done that way in front of a live studio audience. And it's priceless, priceless piece of American entertainment, literature, comedy, whatever it is. We're the beneficiaries of having, oh boy, it's Thursday night. And Cheers is on. Family Ties. And dare I say it, Cosby at 8 o'clock. And then and Night Court. And then all the Botchko shows that came after LAPD and NYPD Blue and, and LA Law. Now, and we do like to wrap with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying lately? Oh, my goodness. I just finished The Crown. It was extraordinary. I'm so happy Fargo's back. Noah Hawley, amazing writer. Taylor Sheridan. Holy shit. <laughs> you know, this new one, uh, Bass Reeves. Fantastic. All of them have been, it's a body of work that overnight has just been extraordinary to watch. Lots of dramas I always, here. Yeah, you know, I mostly watch dramas. When I guarantee I want to laugh, I watch John Oliver. Absolutely know I'm going to laugh when I watch John Oliver. And I watch dramas because I don't do that. And I'm intrigued by it. It's fascinating to me. It's a whole different language. And when you get into the big production stuff, you know, then I'm like, ooh, how did they do that? It's amazing. Are those all computer-generated characters? How long does it take to shoot a, a sword fight? <laughs> all the stuff I don't do, I love to watch and be amazed. And, you know, to be 10 years old and go, holy shit, this is great. I always draw a blank because I do watch a lot of television. But I do really enjoy watching stuff that is far afield from what I do every day. Makes sense. Thank you so much for joining us, Chuck. We really appreciate it. Yeah, be feel free to cut out all the bullshit. <laughs> The first two episodes of Bookie debuted on November 30th on Max, with two episodes launching every Thursday leading up to a finale on December 21st. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's big new launches, you've got Obliterated, The Artful Dodger, and Season 3 of Slow Horses. Dan, what you got? Let's start, I guess, with Artful Dodger, because it's up on Hulu already. It is an Australian acquisition, or I guess it's since it's, I think, Disney Plus internationally, it's sort of all in the Disney family, even though it's a Sony Pictures television show, lots of different credits to list. Anywho, it is a sequel to Oliver Twist, or as I put it in several social media platforms, it's the live action sequel to Oliver and Company, or something to that effect, only with no dogs or cats in any capacity whatsoever. It stars, hey, look, it stars one of the stars of Love Actually. That would be Thomas Brody Sangster, uh, also a star, of course, of Game of Thrones for a season or two. Maybe not star, co-star, guest actor in. Guy who was in several episodes of Game of Thrones. Sure, he was a regular for like one season. Anyway, he plays the Artful Dodger, now mostly known as Jack Dawkins here, because there's no one to really call him an Artful Dodger. It's 15 years after the events of Oliver Twist, and this follows with the events of Oliver Twist, where Dodger, or Jack, was headed off to the penal colony that is Australia, and apparently in the 15 years that passed, 
Dodger became somewhat a war hero and a military surgeon, and now he is a doctor by the standards of 1840s, 1850s, something to that effect, Australia, which is even more primitive than the world of medicine depicted in the Nick. But you can see how probably the Artful Dodger was more inspired by the Nick really and truly than it was inspired by Oliver Twist. Anyway, he's doing his best to become a doctor and to become a legitimate member of society. But then Fagin, played by David Thewlis, arrives in town and begins to push Dodger back towards the world of crime. At the same time, pushing him more towards the world of medicine is the beautiful daughter of the local governor who aspires to be a doctor herself, uh, played by Maya Mitchell, and some kind of pickpocketing and rom-com and body snatching and other various things ensue. It's very, very light. It's very poppy. It does not feel tonally in any way similar at all to either the Charles Dickens source material or really and truly to Oliver exclamation point the musical or particularly to the aforementioned Oliver and Company. But I, I thought the casting was was pretty much spot on. I thought Thomas Brody Sangster was, was a really good choice as kind of the extension of this Artful Dodger character who is characterized in the book and in the musical by being a grown man in a child's body. So now it's interesting that you have this young actor who most people remember as being a child actor in a grown-up's body. And and I kind of like the echo that comes in there. I like the chemistry with Thomas Brody Sangster and Maya Mitchell. I think it's kind of sweet as to whether it's in any way tonally relevant. Hard to know. David Thewlis is great casting as Fagan. He's gross and kind of malevolent, but also obsequiously friendly in exactly the ways you'd want him to be. I was a little perplexed by the idea that you're doing this extension slash continuation of slash reframing of Oliver Twist. You bring Fagin back and you make no attempt whatsoever, at least through the four episodes I've seen, to address the anti-Semitism of Charles Dickens's depiction of the character. In fact, all of the character's Jewishness has been entirely erased. I don't think that's necessarily what the Jews want. I don't think the Jews wanted a an entirely non-Jewish version of Fagin. We wanted a correction therein. Artful Dodger, not, not bad, not necessarily for people who are Dickens obsessives, but entertaining enough. And again, as you may have heard, December is a somewhat slow month, so maybe this is exactly the perfect time for you to decide that the Artful Dodger is the television you crave. Slow Horses is season three now on Apple TV+, and I know it's a show that has a lot of fans, and I'm positive on the show. I think it's a good show. I think it's a show with a very good sense of what it is, and it's a show with a very good sense of how to tell these stories from the McHeron novels, which is most particularly (laughs) the idea that the novels can be boiled down to these six-episode seasons. I think it's actually the perfect way to be adapting these novels. I think if they were eight episodes or ten episodes, it would be too much. And I think this is exactly right. And I think probably the third season, which I've I've watched all of now, really was my favorite of the Slow Horses seasons to date. I think it is easily the most streamlined narrative. All of the characters are involved with the same case and the same mystery and the same dramatic stakes at the exact same time. And that's never been the case in a previous season. People have been off doing their own things. And sometimes the show has meandered a little bit. And this is not that. And I think they've also done a good job of underlining the character's attributes. So Gary Oldman's Jackson Lamb, I would say that this is the grossest the character has ever been and also the most brilliant the character has ever been. And those are the two things that people want. They want this character to be introduced farting in a doctor's waiting room and darned if he 
he is not introduced that way. The season also gives uh, Saskia Reeves, who is fantastic as Catherine Standish, a lot of stuff to do. It's just a really good, solid season of television. I enjoyed season three of Slow Horses a lot. The finale, I would say, is simultaneously really, really thrilling and a little bit ludicrous. But, you know, thrilling and ludicrous is perfectly entertaining, which, you know, brings me to Obliterated on Netflix which is probably more towards the ludicrous side. But I've glanced at some of the reviews, and I'm on the more positive side of this. I've noticed that a lot of people are disliking the show for being childish and coarse and choppy and inconsistent. And I think that that's kind of what it's aspiring to be. I think the show is very much trying to be a sort of lowbrow 80s, 90s action comedy, complete with exploitative and, and somewhat gratuitous nudity, complete with gratuitous and somewhat exploitative violence, etc. And just sort of running along and, and being silly. It has some of the humor that people will expect from the creators, uh, John Hurwitz, Hayden Schlossberg, and my college classmate, Josh Heald, who have been guests on the podcast. Is it only twice or is it three times, Leslie? That's a great question. Let me look. That's not a great question. I think the answer is twice. I think they were guests in two different New Year's podcasts. Yes, they've been on, let's see, in episode 148 from December 31st, 2021. Then they were on January 1st, 2021 in episode 101. And if Netflix hadn't decided to stop with that January 1st tradition, I'm sure we would have had them on multiple more times. It was such a good tradition. And then they had to go and schedule seasons for other times. Anyway, I think that basically they're making movies and television shows for the 12-year-old versions of themselves. And I think that that is what Obliterated is. It is for the 80s 12-year-old in you who snuck downstairs and watched HBO or Cinemax at 11 o'clock on a Friday night after your parents had gone to bed and, you know, were like, ooh, boobs, ooh, explosions, ooh, blood, whatever. And that's kind of what it is. To my mind, probably it's a genre that needs a little bit more subversion than necessarily they're bringing here, but there are subversive elements. Uh, You know, there's every bit as much male flesh as there is female flesh in the series. I would say probably more. I think that the torture scenes are very clearly supposed to be saying, well, look, if you find torture scenes to be fun, you're a little bit of a ghoul. So here's this. Look, it is not a good show. It is a show that so clearly should have been a 95-minute movie, except it's the kind of 95-minute movie that they don't make anymore. And I feel realize that I've babbled on about it, and I haven't gotten anywhere near what the show's actually about. And the basic version of the premise is that a elite task force stops an atomic bomb from going off in Las Vegas. They celebrate by having a wild and crazy party on Uncle Sam's dime, and they're so fucked up, sorry, I know it's a family podcast, that when they get the call from their boss, played by Carl Lumley, because, of course, every CIA agent's boss should be played by Carl Lumley, and tells them that it was actually a decoy that they got and that there's a real bomb out there that's going off in seven hours. They have to weather their inebriation and stop the bomb. I think it's a great premise. Yeah, and it was so great, indeed, that that it was actually ordered straight to series in 2019, not by Netflix, but by TBS. And the funny thing is, I think it probably actually fits better with what the TBS comedy brand was at the time. Obviously, there's- Keyword was, because with Miracle Workers now canceled, they have absolutely no US live action 
scripted originals. All that's left on their original roster is American Dad. And it somewhat fits, I think, honestly, with what Netflix is doing, because I think it has affection for the same 80s, 90s action comedies as the Arnold Schwarzenegger action comedy FUBAR did. I think it is better than FUBAR. I think it's still, though, it's it's meandering and, and digressive, and sometimes it's intentionally that, but sometimes it's just meandering and digressive. And I think, look, you're going in, it is childish, it is coarse, it is immature, but either you have a sweet spot in your heart for the genre that it is referencing and referencing and referencing and referencing, or you don't. And if you don't, you'll probably know within about 15 minutes, even before you get to the actual premise, that you don't want to stick around for it. And that's totally fine. I'm not going to tell anyone this is essential television. I just think that a lot of the things people are complaining about about it are exactly the things that it's trying to do. I'm just not sure it's trying to be good. I think it's trying to be an emulation of things that were very frequently bad with a little bit more amusement about those things. And also, C. Thomas Howell does a Weekend at Bernie's thing for like four episodes that I thought was really, really funny. Not dead, but in a drug-based coma. And yay, C. Thomas Howell. I'm going to go out on a limb here, Dan, and predict that Obliterated is going to be a big hit for Netflix. Because gourmet cheeseburger. Oh, no, this is not gourmet at all. No, this it's is, cheeseburger. Yeah. This, this is, is cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. This is not a gourmet cheeseburger. This is not an In-N-Out cheeseburger. This is... It's not the night agent, but it's not not in that oh, kind of bucket. It's, it's big it's, and broad and will appeal to coastal, middle country, all of it. Some people will find it fun. I think that's absolutely true. And so I'm putting it in that context. That I think it comes close to achieving some of the things it wants to achieve. I just think that the things it wants to achieve are on a lower level than some of the standards it's being held to, which you know, is fine. It will not be for everybody, but it will be for some people. Really very little to say about Bookie because Max only sent out one episode. I chuckled at it though. And there was nothing that like grabbed me, but I thought that some of the cameos that Chuck Lorre discussed in our interview were very funny and that it has moments that are a little bit smarter and a little bit more heart driven than you might be expecting. But if you've been following what Chuck Lorre has been doing for you know basically since mom i don't think it's actually all that expected and this is one of those shows where i can imagine it being a much better show by episode eight or ten or season two because i think that some of the chuck Lorre shows recently have required a little while to settle into their ensembles and i can see how this would be one that would do that as well and last but not least just a, a quick word uh, hbo on monday premieres the documentary series murder in boston roots rampage and reckoning about the murder of carol stewart and it is directed somewhat amusingly if you stop and think about it and amusingly is the wrong word for anything about this truly horrible and gripping story by jason Hare, um who of course did last dance the michael jordan bulls documentary and it's funny because he uses a lot of the same techniques only to much more serious and dramatic effect he he interviews a lot of the people impacted by the, the truly shocking and truly horrible story of carol stewart's murder and it, it's it's gripping stuff it is yet another three hour docu three part documentary series that should not have been a three-part documentary series. Uh, to me, there are a number of avenues that the documentary does not follow that it really should have if it was going to be good. And so I would have probably preferred it to have a little bit more depth at four to six hours. But anyway, it's interesting stuff. There's not a pure recommendation here. I think that Slow Horses is probably the thing I liked most. 
but there, there's an audience for a lot of the stuff this week. And so, yeah, I hope you, I, I hope if you are that audience that you find the shows that will make you happy. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you as always for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on the social medias. She's at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. Let us know what's working, what isn't working. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That is TV's Top 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.